Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, welcome to all of you here at Central Campus, to those of you who are joining us online, also those of you who are meeting at one of our other regional campuses in the city. As uh, you know, this is the Sunday we move our clocks forward uh, and we lose an hour of sleep, which means people around you are going to be grumpy and uh, you know, when they show up at church, they're going to have this stunned and sour look on their faces trying to figure out how is it possible on the Sunday I finally show up on time, I'm still an hour late. <laughs> After the service, you'll be able to spot them easily. They're going to be out in the atrium. They're going to be standing there, tapping their watches, scratching their heads, muttering to themselves and anyone else that's nearby. If they ask you, what's going on? I'll just tell them we started another service and uh, invite them out for lunch. Yeah, just go for that. Anyways, I am concerned about you losing an hour of sleep. Many of you are going to be groggy and probably are and grumpy. And so to help us with that, I want us to pretend that um, the Flames are in the Stanley Cup final. And uh, they just scored the winning goal to win the cup. All right? So just imagine that you know, for a minute or so, or a second or so. I want you to think about that. And what we're going to do is we're going to cheer each other on. And uh, so I want to just cheer for our other campuses, all right? Uh, they're they're going to be uh, viewing here, so uh, tuning in. So let's, uh, let's cheer them on. So let's cheer for our church family in Airdrie. Yeah, Airdrie. All right. Let's, church, uh, let, let's cheer for our church family in Bridgeland. Yes. And our church family in South Calgary. All right. And our church family in Northwest Calgary, Crowfoot. All right. Anyways, we're in a series called Christianity 101 in which we're looking at what it is that Christians believe. And today we're going to talk about the assurance of salvation that we receive from the Holy Spirit. Before we get into it, I'm going to invite you to stand again, if you would. And uh, let's dedicate this time in God's Word to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to, again, just thank you for life, for laughter, the beauty of your creation. Thank you for teaching us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit through your written word. And we ask, oh God, that you would now focus our minds, you would soften our hearts, and you would give us the will and the courage, Lord, to respond in whatever way you would have us to as we learn more about the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pastor Erwin Lutzer says he has a friend in Istanbul whom he describes as a wonderful man and a devoted Muslim. Lutzer asked him one day, are you absolutely certain that Islam is right? And his friend responded, he was totally convinced. And then he asked, when you die, do you have the assurance that you'll be in heaven? And his friend said, no. Nobody can have that assurance. We do the best we can, and we just hope that Allah will do it. But we have no idea what Allah is going to do. And I have no idea of whether or not I'm going to be there. So let me ask you, if you were to die tonight, do you have the assurance that you'll go to be with God in heaven? The Bible teaches that it is possible for Christ's followers to be sure that they are going to heaven when they die. Look at what the Apostle John wrote. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. In other words, all that he stands for. Those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, what? That you may, can you say it together? No. That you may know, not hope so or think so, but that you may know you have eternal life. Now, you can't be any more clear than that. And yet often I have people approach me, sometimes with tears in their eyes, expressing deep concern about whether or not they are truly in the faith. They wonder if they can lose their salvation. Well, the scripture that I just read, and many others like it, clearly and definitively teaches that if you are a true believer in and follower of Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You are secure in your salvation. The question that we need to be concerned about is not, can I lose my salvation? But am I a true believer? That's the issue. The Apostle Paul challenged the church in Corinth with this question in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is what he wrote. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Paul's warning here suggests that there is a faith that is genuine, and there is a faith that is counterfeit. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus gets to the heart of what genuine faith is. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A genuine faith, says Jesus, involves more than believing all the right things. It involves doing the will of our heavenly Father. But then in verse 22... Jesus essentially says, a genuine faith, however, involves more than just doing wonderful things for God, as important as that is. Look what he says. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do wonderful things for you? Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So according to Jesus, a genuine faith is more than believing, and it's more than doing. He says you can believe, believe, and believe. You can have perfect doctrine. He says, you can do, do, do. You can do miraculous things for God and still miss what is most precious to me. So what is most precious to Jesus? Well, the short answer is knowing him, having a relationship with him, communicating with him, hearing him, talking to him in prayer. On judgment day, says Jesus, there will be people who will have an impressive religious resume. And he says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Their faith was counterfeit. Because even though their doctrine was perfectly correct and their ministry and their good works were spectacular, they never really cultivated a close friendship with Jesus. In all of this, Jesus is saying our faith can be based on a lot of good things and yet miss the most important thing. And so as the Apostle Paul says, it's important that we test ourselves. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives us such a test. It tells a parable. He tells a parable about a farmer planting seed. In those days, a farmer would have a pouch full of seed and he would scatter it with his hands. And this is 
what Jesus says, beginning in verse 3. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Now in this parable, the person planting the seed is God. The seed itself is the word of God, or the good news of God. And beginning in verse 18, Jesus explains the parable that he gave. And he explains the four kinds of soil in his parable represent four different heart responses to the word of God. The first kind of soil is the hardened soil, the pathway along the field, which represents a hardened heart that rejects Jesus. The truth of God's word doesn't sink in, not because it's difficult to understand, but because the person in question doesn't want to understand. People with hardened hearts are often critical of Christians for not being open-minded, and yet are closed-minded themselves to examining the Christian faith. Others are more open, but are looking for reasons not to believe, rather than reasons to believe. Best-selling author Lee Strobel tells when he was an atheist earlier in his life, he relished hearing any news that made Christianity look bad. He relished finding anything that seemed to discredit the claims of Jesus because it made him feel better about avoiding Christ because he didn't want to change anything in his life. Socrates spent most of his life questioning everything. And near the end of his life, he was filled with doubt and despair because he came to the realization that the only thing that he knew for sure was that he didn't know anything for sure. Those with a skeptical, hard heart often end up in a similar place. Now, the second soil is the rocky soil. And it represents a shallow heart. This is the person who hears the word of God and immediately with joy receives it. Unfortunately, he bases his decision on the benefits of embracing Christ and doesn't factor in the cost of following Jesus. In Matthew 8, we read about a fellow who was so blown away by Jesus' teaching and by his miracles he enthusiastically approached Jesus and announced, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And if you read on a little further, Jesus basically says, Whoa, whoa, boy, slow down just a bit. I mean, do you understand what you're signing up for? Have you counted the cost of what you're committing to by following me? You see, Jesus was upfront about the costs of following him. He let people know without apology that following him would cost them everything. That partial surrender was not optional. Time and time again, Jesus let it be known that being his disciple involved being all in with him. And that's one of the reasons that we read in the scriptures that many of his disciples, not just a few, it says many of his disciples... Many of the people who had signed up and said, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. I'm on your team. Many of it, the scriptures tell us, many of those people turned back and no longer followed him. And we see the same thing happening in our day. Sadly, a growing number of churches and pastors, often in an attempt to grow the numbers of their church, hold out all the blessings and benefits of embracing Jesus the way a salesman often offers a product to consumers. They say, come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage and family. Come to Jesus and he'll heal your diseases. 
Come to Jesus and he'll prosper you financially. Now, Jesus can do all these things and more. It's not wrong to come to Jesus for what he can do for you. The problem is, for too many people, that's all they come to Jesus for, if they're honest. They really have no interest in cultivating a friendship with him, no interest in following him, no interest in turning from sin and letting go of their counterfeit gods and putting their trust totally in him. All they're interested in is what they think Jesus can do for them. Maybe she had a deep need to belong. Maybe his life for marriage was falling apart and he needed some support until things started going better again. Maybe she wanted to marry you and you told her that you were a Christ follower and you just couldn't marry her unless you were both on the same page spiritually. And so she said, okay. And she accepted Christ to please you. But now months later or years later, it's evident her faith took no root. It's evident that there has been no heart transformation. There's no real hunger for God. There's no real passion to live for God. She did it for you. James, Jesus describes it this way in verse 21. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Jesus says the shallow convert comes to Jesus for what he believes he can get from Jesus. But when his marriage or his family is, isn't fixed or healing doesn't happen in the time framework allotted or the business doesn't improve. In short, when Jesus fails to give him the good life that he, signed, that he thought he signed up for or when his life starts crumbling or his faith is tested or his beliefs are being challenged, the person with the shallow heart quickly bails. The third soil that Jesus describes here is the thorny soil, and it represents a worldly heart. This is the person who hears the good news of Jesus and makes a token profession of faith, prays a prayer, signs up, kind of adds Christ to his already overcrowded schedule, but figures it can't hurt. But sadly, his first love is not the Lord. But rather, his first love is the things of this world. The Apostle John talks about this. And he says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The person, therefore, who is more concerned with what others think of her than what Jesus thinks of her, the person who's more passionate about possessing the things that God created rather than knowing and serving the Creator, the person who takes sin lightly or turns a deaf ear to God's call to obedience, all of this is evidence that the seed of God's saving grace has, not, has been choked out and has not found root in a person's heart. And then finally, Jesus refers to good soil, which represents an open heart. Because this person's heart is humble and receptive to God. She hears the word of God, surrenders her life totally to God, and carries out the assignments of God. And verse 23 says that the end result is a large harvest, huge impact, 160, 30 times what was sown. In other words, the ultimate mark of a genuine believer is fruit-bearing. When the seed of God's loving grace takes hold of our lives, 
our lives begin to change. Our attitudes begin to change in a good way. Now, of course, this doesn't happen overnight, but when Christ truly becomes resident in your life, you have a different mindset. You see life through a different set of glasses, as it were, because you're now following a new Lord and new King. Your life begins to reflect the love and the joy and the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, and the self-control of Jesus. Your heart begins to break over the things that break the heart of God. You are a new person with a new Lord. Now all of this raises the question, okay then, if this is what a genuine disciple of Christ looks like, how does one become a true child of God? I mean, maybe you're here today and you're wondering about where you really stand with God. How does one become a genuine follower of Jesus? Well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Now, he's talking to Christians here. He's describing their life before they embrace Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at, that, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The Apostle Paul teaches here that becoming a Christ follower first of all, requires that we realize we have a problem called sin. We have all sinned, and our sin separates us from God. In other words, we are spiritually dead. Paul says you are dead in your sins. Now, Paul goes on to say that God's wrath is directed not at us, but our sins. Because even though God is a loving God, he is a holy and a just God, he can't stand sin. And his justice and holiness demands that our crimes against him and others be paid for before we can come in right relationship with him. The problem is we can't pay for our sins through our own efforts or through our own good works because we're spiritually dead and dead people can't do anything. And so God does an incredible thing. Look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. In other words, dead in sins. It is by grace you have been saved. Knowing that we could never pay for our own crimes against him, God took the initiative and arranged for our sins to be paid for through Jesus Christ. He sent his only son, Jesus, God in human flesh, to take our place of punishment, to pay for our sins with his own blood on the cross, and through his resurrection, to make us spiritually alive again, making it possible for us to have a relationship, a friendship with God. When we by faith accept his free gift, we find ourselves clean and forgiven and spiritually alive again through Christ. Paul put it this way. Look down at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now I want you to take special note of how we are saved. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by anything that we do. We are saved by the grace of God. In other words, God made a way possible through Jesus. But notice that Paul says we are saved by grace through faith. 
The word through in the original language carries the idea of means or agency. Faith is the means through which God is able to apply his grace to our lives. Charles Stanley uses an illustration that may help us understand this more clearly. He says, imagine that you are on the fifth floor of an apartment building that is engulfed by fire. You're on a ledge outside of your apartment. You can't go back in because your apartment is totally engulfed in flames. You have no way of escape other than to jump to your death. Now, fortunately, below you, firemen have set up a safety net. They are calling out to you to jump into it. You ponder long and hard whether or not you can trust the net. But after exploring every other alternative, you leap from the fifth-story ledge into the safety net. Much to your relief, the net holds you. You escape with only minor injuries. The crowd cheers, the firemen high-five you, high-five each other, and you go on your merry way. So let me ask you, <coughs> excuse me, what saved your life? Well, the net, of course. Now, surely you wouldn't credit yourself for saving your own life. The net saved you. But what bridged the gap between your desperate situation on that ledge and the net below? Well, it was one desperate leap. And friends, that's faith. Please notice this. You leaping off the ledge did not save you. I mean, many people have jumped from the upper floors of burning buildings and ended up dead on the pavement below. I mean, just think back to 9-11. No, you jumping didn't save your life. It was the net that saved you. The same is true in the spiritual realm. Your faith does not save you. Many people at one point or another put their faith in something. But Jesus taught a day is coming when people will discover to their horror that they put their faith in the wrong thing. Faith does not save you. It's what your faith is in that saves you. It's God's grace through Jesus Christ that saves you. Our faith, however, is necessary in the sense that it bridges the gap between our need and what God has provided. Once you jump, you are safe. In the same way, once we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved. And it is in this sense that salvation is a free gift. We cannot purchase our way to heaven. We can't earn it. We can't bargain our way to heaven through our own efforts or by keeping the Ten Commandments, or by following um, some five-step or eight-fold religious plan. All we can do is put our faith in Him. Or in terms of our illustration, all we can do is leap into the net that's already been provided. Now, I appreciate Charles Stanley's illustration, but I, I see one little deficiency in it to try to understand what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus. Based on what I believe the Bible teaches, a better word picture might be this. When you become a Christian, you are not leaping into a net, as it were. You're leaping into the arms of a person, Jesus Christ. Put another way, you aren't surrendering your life to a religious system, to a code of ethics, to a system of rituals. No, you're surrendering your life to a person. Jesus Christ. Eternal life is an ongoing and growing friendship with Jesus Christ that starts now or whenever it is you put your faith in him. In a sense, it's like when you get married. The relationship doesn't end on the wedding day. At least let's hope not. No, the relationship actually begins on a whole new dimension 
on the wedding day. A wedding would be a sham if the bride or the groom said all the right things, made all the right promises, but never intended to follow through on cultivating that relationship to be all that God wants it to be. In the same way, friends, we cheapen all that Christ did for us on the cross when we think that eternal life is obtainable by little more than nodding our head in God's direction. or believing all the right stuff, or saying the right prayer, but never intending to grow deeper in our friendship with Jesus. Make no mistake, friends, becoming a Christian involves a complete, total change of mind about who you will serve from this point forward. It's destroying all the other counterfeit gods in your life that you're trusting in to give you satisfaction that you're trusting in for a definition of success, that you're trusting in for security in life, that you're trusting in for financial security, and instead putting your trust in God and him alone. It's embracing the God who is rather than the God that you want. It's putting your life completely in his hands. Trusting him not only to get you to heaven, which is a wonderful thing, but also trusting him in this life by living all out for him and following him as your Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. My friend Charles Price puts it this way. If someone comes to Christ and says, I want to experience you as my Savior, but I do not want you to be Lord of my life, to tell me what to do or how to live, that person will receive from the Lord precisely nothing. He will not receive eternal life or the Holy Spirit or all the things that Christ longs to do in us and through us. Now, folks, please understand, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ does not mean that there will not be struggles, there will not be sin in your life. For example, even though I am committed to making my wife Gwen the the exclusive object of my love and my affection does not mean that there are never going to be times where there are tensions, misunderstandings, struggles, anger, even feelings of rebellion. I mean, just ask her. In a relationship as close as marriage, these are inevitable, and there will be times when apologies are in order. But the relationship continues because we've made a commitment to each other, to stay together. And because our desire is to know each other better, to love each other more deeply, and to serve each other more consistently. Similarly, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, our surrendering to him means that he is given a place of priority that is shared with no one else. But this does not mean there will not be struggles no sin or failure on our part. Because we fail at times, because we sin at times, does not mean we are not followers of Jesus. For as you've heard me say so many times before, it is not the perfection of your life, but it is the direction of your heart and of your life that really reveals whether you are a believer or not. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 says, this is how we know we are in him. In other words, in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. You see, we can never live the Christian life perfectly the way that Jesus did. But if the direction, the desire of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to know and to love God and to hate sin, if it is to live in humility 
and to love selflessly and sacrificially, if it is to follow the Lord obediently, we can know that we are in right relationship with God even when we fall short at times. Look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Just go back one chapter. Paul's talking here, again, to believers. And he's talking about our identity in Christ Jesus, about who we are and what God has done for us. And this is what he writes. Verse 13. And you also, now put your name in there. And you also, Gordon, Don, and you also, Grace, and you also, Bill, and you also, Betty. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now notice Paul writes, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When someone becomes a Christian in the manner that I just talked about, God puts his seal upon you, which is the Holy Spirit, who enters your life, not temporarily, but permanently, and begins to transform you into the likeness of his son, Jesus. The likeness of, of our Lord, Jesus. We are God's forever child. And we need never doubt that again. Look at what 1 John 4.13 says. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and they in God. The Holy Spirit is God's seal in your life. You see, in the same way that an ancient king's seal on a letter communicated that that letter was his property. So the Holy Spirit's presence in you communicates that you belong to God. In the same way that the seal of the Roman emperor was intended to keep the tomb of Jesus secure, so God's seal, the presence of the Holy Spirit in you and me, assures us that our salvation is secure. Now, people often ask me, okay, if the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that I belong to him, if the Holy Spirit is his assurance of salvation, how do I know that the Holy Spirit's living in me? Well, let me give you some practical examples of how you can know. Every time you're prompted to pray, Every time you're prompted to pray for someone else or to serve someone, to serve in some ministry, you can know the Holy Spirit is in you. Because you see, these things are not naturally things that we do. Every time you're reading the scriptures and a verse directly challenges you to forgive someone or to extend grace to someone, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. One of the signs that the Holy Spirit is in you and working in your life is that you're more sensitive to sin around you. Not in this, you know, judgmental way where you're, you know, going around judging everybody. But you're just sensitive to sin around you. You're more sensitive to profanity, to cheating and lying. You're more sensitive to sexual immorality. You're more sensitive to media and materials and activities that tend to fuel lustful and sensual thoughts that degrade women and our God-given dignity. You're more sensitive to disrespectful attitudes toward God, to materialism and to selfishness, and to the needs of the impoverished and the injustices of our world. 
You see, all of these probably didn't bother you hardly at all, if at all, before you became a Christ follower. But now you have this heightened sensitivity to them. And that, my friend, is evidence that God's Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is in us not to condemn us, but to encourage us, to help us, to bless us, to strengthen us, to empower us, to guide us, to teach us God's truth, and to warn us when we're straying from God's best for us. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that the Holy Spirit will never stop his work in us. He will never leave us or forsake us, even when we grieve him or offend him. It's so important that you understand that the Spirit of God is in you and at work in you. Because you see, when you sin and you feel a sense of conviction about your sin, you're going to hear the evil one accuse you of not even being a follower of Jesus Christ or accuse you and say to you that you can't be used by God. I mean, look, look at what you just did. What a hopeless Christian you are. Pack it in. Don't believe him. The devil is a liar. He is a deceiver. He wants you out of the action. The fact that you are pained by your sin is not a sign of the Holy Spirit's absence. It's actually a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. He is lovingly convicting you. He's warning you of sin and the cost of sin. But even while the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, remember his motive is intense love for you. He has your best interests at heart. He wants you to resist the accusations of Satan, to refuse to back down or to quit, but instead to confess your sin, to make your life right with God, and then get back up, affirming your identity in Jesus Christ, and keep on walking toward Jesus. I'll close with this. In the book entitled The Whisper Test, the author writes, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When the schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. This is definitely old school. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back, things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put in her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life. For Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my girl. I wish you were my girl. You know, for many of you here, one day the Holy Spirit of God came to you and whispered, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. I'd love for you to belong to me. Do you remember that day? Do you remember changing your mind at that moment? Humbling yourself? 
confessing your sin and surrendering your life into the hands of Jesus Christ. And since that time, your life, your heart, your attitudes, your values have never been the same. As you read his word, you've heard him whisper encouragement and his promises and his direction and yes, his challenges and his convictions. And as you go forward, you will continue to hear other voices as well. As you have in the past, voices reminding you of your past failures. Voices tempting you to sin. Voices tempting you to not trust the Lord, to take matters into your own hands. Voices accusing you of being a failure as a Christian. That you're unworthy to call yourself a Christian. That you're unworthy to serve him in any capacity. All these voices would seek not only to discourage you, but get you to quit, to pack it in. But in the midst of all of these other voices, I want to remind you that there is one voice that really matters, only one. Only one that really tells the truth. And that is, you're my son. You're my daughter. You are my beloved. My favor rests on you. Believe it, friend. Embrace it to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs our Jesus. Would you stand for closing prayer? Let's just close our eyes and let's open our hands to the Lord again like this. The scriptures talk about not just listening to the word, but responding to it, doing what it says. So what have you heard the Spirit say to you in this service? What have you heard? And what are you going to do about it? What steps will you take? Talk to the Lord about that right now. I'm aware that this message will have served to give wonderful assurance to some of you and create much spiritual insecurity in others of you. If you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, then I want to remind you that more than anything, the Lord wants you to be his child. He's made a way possible. He's extending his hands to you. He's saying, come home, son. Come home, daughter. But you've got to humble yourself. You, you got to own up to your sins and your regrets. You have to take that leap of faith. If you're wondering where you stand with God, if you're not sure whether your faith is genuine, if you have questions that you'd like to talk to someone about, I'm going to encourage you to just make your way up here. A prayer partner will gladly pray with you or answer questions that you may have. Some of you may just want to come up here and just spend some time, extended time with the Lord in prayer. Just please make your way up here, even right now. Let's just all respond to the Lord in whatever way you'd have us to.
Our Heavenly Father, thank you for gifting us with the Holy Spirit. As evidence, Lord, that we are yours. We have the God of the universe, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit living right in us wanting, Lord, to live through us. I just pray, O oh God, that you would not only give us assurance that that is a fact, but Lord, you would open up our understanding of all that you want to do in us and through us for your honor and glory. Thank you for listening to every person in this place as they've been talking to you about what you've been talking to them about. Assure them, Lord, of not only their salvation, Lord, but assure them of your love, your grace. And grant them, Lord, your peace and your joy. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.